This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leadership in the Bible, a practical guide for today. And the authors are Paul Ohana and David Arnau. And Paul joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paul. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, it's great to have you with us all the way from Paris, France. And you have an extensive background, which we will learn more about in the moment. But first of all, just a short kind of an overview of your book. Uh, you say uh, you're a management consultant and a psychologist, and, and you've revisited 40 familiar Bible stories to help us learn how to manage our life more effectively, not only at home, but at work. I mean, you're, you're applying Bible examples, Bible leaders to business. Now, that is, uh, I would have to say, that is uh, stepping outside the box. Well, we, we live right now in a strange situation worldwide. In the various countries, in the families, in the companies, we, we, we lack orientation, we lack sense, we, la we lack, you know, where we go. And uh, we are always looking for some kind of guidance. And David and I have been looking at the Bible as a source of guidance. I would say that it does not exactly because of religious matters. We look at the Bible as a reference book, a book which has proven itself for years, for centuries, by the message, by its act acceptance worldwide, all what the Bible has brought. I would say that the whole world has accepted it. So we have tried to find out out of the Bible clues, cues on how to solve practical problems. So my background in uh, the business world and the background of David in psychology, both of them were very useful to make this bridge between all the, the wisdom, all the, the, the intelligence that uh, you find in the Bible with all our background in, in the business life. So the 40 examples that we picked cover most of the fields of management, starting from recruiting, management of crisis, change management, whatever. All the key themes of the management and of life have been explored by us, and we have looked at solutions all over the literature, I would say, but we focused on the Bible because of its content, because of its reputation. Nobody will argue about, you know, the message of the, the Bible. So we bring a little bit of Bible, a little bit of management theory, but mainly we bring a bridge between both of them. And I would say that the originality of our book is building this bridge between two different worlds which use not to recognize the other. Well, you have studied in France, you've studied in America, you're now a member of the Board of Governors of Ben-Gurion University, so your background is uh, recognized management as a management consultant, uh, you know, of course, strategic planning, human resource development, public policy evaluation, so as you, as you looked at the Bible, you picked out uh, those leaders that we all know their name, but you, you made that link to today. For, so let's get, why don't you talk a little bit about Abraham and, and why you chose him and some of the things that we can learn 
in managing ourselves and managing business today from Abraham? Well, Abraham is a wonderful example. Why? Because Abraham, you can identify him with most of the problems people are facing today. In one of the famous uh, pieces of the Bible, there is what is called in Hebrew, lech lecha, which means come and go out. And the come and go out is the indication of all the migration problems that we know now in the world. People are moving from one country to the other one, some in good conditions, some in poor conditions. But the fact that everyone is going, has to move or is going to move is a, a normal way of life today. So Abraham, if he was living today, would most probably ask himself if he should stay where he is or if he should go someplace else. So that's about Abraham at that time. Now, the Abraham of today are the same people who have to make a decision about their organization. Should they stay within the same organization? Should they change it completely? Do they have to go through the what we call the mondialization, the worldwide aspect of business? Business, as usual, is no more acceptable. So every one of us is to a certain extent an Abraham himself because he's dealing with the same problems that Abraham had, which is, should I leave my house and hear it? Should I leave my business? Should I leave what I am doing? Should I leave my key field of activity? So just on that very aspect, you have something to learn on how to handle change change of situation, change of place, change of technology, whatever. And when you look at the Bible and you look at present situation, you see that people are really facing the, the same types of problem. Let me take another example, a very famous one. The example of Abraham negotiating with God about the future of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that Abraham asked God, you know, you will, you will not destroy a city with the, the good people with the bad people. And God says, obviously, no. So he said, why, if, if, if by any chance there were 50 people in that city, would you uh, uh, prevent them from dying? God said, obviously, for 50, I would do this effort. But what is doing Abraham? He's going from... 50 to 40 to 30 and ending to 10 people. And God says, when, even for 10 people, I'll accept. This type of negotiation, this very type of negotiation, I have been teaching it as a management consultant for years. And by the way, I was not realizing that I was using a, bi a biblical approach, but that's exactly the way it is. So this is the second example about Abraham. I could add much more, but what I see about Abraham, which is interesting, it's a man of vision. He is a man who goes, you know, in advance. He is not exactly knowing what he's going, but he knows he has to go there. And he will take his people very, very, very far. That's a man of vision, by difference of other people who are not visionary leaders, but who are strategic or whatever. Abraham is exactly the image of a visionary leader. We've been listening to Paul Ohana, the author of his book, uh, the co-author, along with David Arnau, the title, Leadership in the Bible, a Practical Guide for Today. Abraham, visionary leadership, as you so well have pointed out. Well, let's move on and just tell us a little bit about Joseph, well-known Old Testament name, uh, biblical name, leader, strate strategic leadership. You're talking about his strategies. Well, I love the example of Joseph, and i tell you why. Number one, I will tell you, if the Joseph was living today in America, he would be most probably a graduate of MIT of the Harvard Business School, because he is a clever guy, and 
he has a very unique technology. His unique technology, what is it? Is it his capacity to give a good interpretation of dreams? Now, what's happening in, in Joseph's life? Anytime he went to any place, he succeeded. He succeeded because he had a very organized, strategic, step-by-step way of doing things. When Pharaoh gave him the responsibility of running uh, the, the draft situation in, uh, in Egypt, he explained how to organize things for seven years, and after that for the other seven years, and he had a very, very well organized that. Do you recognize leaders of uh, today who are like that? I mean, it's a very step-by-step uh, -step way of managing things. So for me, Joseph has been the perfect example of a, a, of a strategic leader, but in the same time, he knew how to be a number two, which means completely devoted to the number one, who was Pharaoh, never, never uh, betraying him in any, in any way, and to the extent that he was more inclined to give satisfaction to Pharaoh than to the people. He did everything honestly, wonderfully, for the good sake of Pharaoh, and maybe not always for the good sake of all the other people. The title of the book, Leadership in the Bible, provides 40 familiar biblical stories concerning uh, leadership uh, then and how it applies to leadership today. Uh, Paul, tell us now, in the time we have remaining, a little bit about Moses' mission-driven leadership. Well, Moses, in my opinion, has been misinterpreted or misrepresented in the movie approach of things. You have to think of Moses as being a very, very modest man. He is someone who has not been willing to accept willingly, immediately, the mission that God wanted to give him, which was to bring the Jewish people from where they were to uh, Canaan, and in the same time to teach them the laws of, of God. He, you know, there is a very interesting part of the Bible where Moses is just telling God, I am not the right man, I don't know how to speak, I, am, I, uh, I need signs to show to the people that I have some power, and God is patiently explaining him how he would help him, how he would do everything with him. And once Moses accepts the mission from God, or at that time he is 100% devoted to his mission, Nothing will stop him, nothing will prevent him. So the example today, again, when you go to the business world, before you accept a mission or a delegation, be sure of the content of the delegation. Be sure that you want to accept it. Be sure that you identify it with, with, the, with your own values. And once you accept it, please go ahead and do it. But now, Go, going back to, to Moses, there are situations where we thought, I mean, in all modesty, that he didn't take the right decision. When you remember the story of the golden calf, if you will remember, what happened? The Israelites were having just listened to God and to the commandments. And they were in a situation really of shock, of emotionally shocked. And here we are, Moses goes to see God and spends 40 days and nights discussing with God about the, the new laws. And the Jewish people has remained by himself without any leader, without any guidance. And what happened? They happened that they built the golden calf because no one was there to tell them what to do and what not to do. So even the, the greatest leaders we have in the Bible, sometimes they just don't behave the right way. 
And coming back now to the day-to-day situation, the business situation, I would say that you have examples like that. If you go uh, on vacation and you come back and you find your number two uh, dealing with your business and not dealing with it properly, I mean, uh, it's a tremendous, it's a problem. Now, I would like to clarify one point, which for me is very important. When we say business, business is everything. When we say leaders, leaders, that's everything. You are a leader. I am a leader. My kids are a leader. Leaders are taking your own responsibility. It's managing your family, managing your business, managing uh, uh, your your football team uh, better than it is today. You see what I mean? And a few things like that. So what I mean is that the book is intended for almost everyone who is in a position of responsibility. And the idea is to show that we have the capabilities to be good leaders, whatever the place where we are, whatever the the size of the organization we have to lead. So we are really very helpful that with the backing of the Bible, with the backing of our expertise in management, we could bring something somewhat to anyone who would like to improve himself and to have a better self-development. We've been listening to Paul Ohana. He, along with David R. Now, are the co-authors of Leadership in the Bible, a practical guide for today. Paul, what's the best way to get your book? Today, the book is uh, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, uh, in any good bookstore. You can have it without any problem. Just go to Amazon, click Leadership in the Bible. You'll find it and you'll enjoy it, I hope. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. An important book and an interesting history is outlined in today's featured book. The title is Black Warriors, the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, and our author, Ivan J. Houston, joins me from California. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here on your program. This is a fascinating book on many levels, not only because uh, some of us who are not perhaps long in tooth, if I may use that phrase, or are younger, <laughs> may not understand the, uh, the challenges of World War II, not only from the fighting standpoint, but also from the enlisted folks who are there. The uh, Army in army and uh, the military in World War II was, in some regards, segregated. You're one of those survivors, one of those individuals that fought on behalf of the United States. And uh, it says in uh, the foreword of your book an interesting phrase, uh, or an interesting paragraph that caught my attention. It says in 1942, Ira Lewis inaugurated the Double V Program, which demanded that blacks risking their lives overseas receive full citizenship at home. That caught me. Why was there not full citizenship? And tell me the background story of Black Warriors. 
Well, uh, there was not full citizenship at home because uh, uh, we couldn't go everywhere like we can now. If you went to, you couldn't go into restaurants in many cities, not only in the South, but uh, even in the North. You couldn't stay at hotels uh, here in uh, even Los Angeles, where I live, uh, and where I was born 89 years ago. My. So uh, it was a definitely, we were what I refer to as second-class citizens. Hmm. Difficult to understand uh, in today's world. I, uh, I guess so. I guess so. Yes, but you overcame those challenges, became an enlisted man, and or were you conscripted into the Army? No, I, I enlisted. I enlisted the day before I turned 18 because I found out that I could finish another semester at the University of California, Berkeley, where I had uh, completed one year, if I enlisted. If I was drafted, I would have been gone in 30 days. So uh, I enlisted and ended up, in the, uh, ended up in the infantry in a very strange way. <laughs> and, and it was segregated. <laughs> and what was, what was your position as you uh, grew through the ranks of uh, the military? Uh, well, I was uh, initially a scout scout observer in a 3rd Battalion headquarters company, and uh, then I, uh, then I was, uh, became the battalion clerk, uh, which meant that, uh, with, and also, I was also assisting the operations sergeant and still working as a scout. So I had multiple uh, duties uh, as, a, uh, as a soldier, not just one single duty. It was in the position as a uh, of uh, recording everything that our battalion did hour by hour uh, that uh, became the framework for the book that I wrote. You were a combat journal specialist in your battalion, and that well, uh, certainly you set you say up. that I was one of them. One there of were them. not. I would, I, there weren't just. It just wasn't me. There were about three or four of us that uh, maintained the journal. We got our information from uh, what we call from telephone because we always had a telephone line running to our combat positions if it wasn't blown up by the Germans sometime by radio not very much during World War two and uh, then often very frequently by messenger runner a guy would uh, take a message from one company to another company they would all report to battalion headquarters we would write it down and so we had sometimes minute-by-minute minute records of what was actually happening. Where did the term Buffalo Soldiers come from? The term Buffalo Soldiers came from uh, the fact that uh, black soldiers fought in the American Civil War. Some of them were sent west, cavalry, uh, to, and they engaged the uh, Indians, the Native Americans, in, uh, in, after the Civil War in the western plains of the United States. The Indians thought that they were very brave soldiers. Also, because of the hair of the buffalo is not uh, not unlike the hair of uh, of black uh, uh, citizens. Hmm. So it was possibly in that area that they began to call them uh, buffalo soldiers, and that name stuck stood. You have also had a dis distinguished career in business following World War II. Share a little of that history as well. Well, I, uh, I graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Then I went studied actuarial science at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, I went to work for a company that my father founded, uh, Golden State Mutual Life. And uh, then I rose and became the chief executive officer and was in that position from 1970 to 1990. And uh, also while I was there, I was a member of the board of uh, Pacific Telephone Telegraph Company, which is now AT&T, uh, First Interstate Bank, which is now Wells Fargo, uh, Metro Media, several other major uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies, so I had a quite a varied and busy business career uh, in those kinds of capacities. You retired in 1990, I believe, and had nothing to do. You say you're unemployed, so you decided, well, I'll just 
I'll just pen my memoir. Is that, is, yeah, is that how it came right. together? Well, my <laughs> wife and I did a lot of traveling, especially to back to Italy, because, uh, yeah, I had maintained, kept this journal, and it got to me after World War II, very strange way, but uh, it was about 400 pages, but it just stayed there. But we did a lot of traveling, especially to Italy. Yeah, well, I was in combat there, which was from... Uh, August 1944 to April to May 1945, you really didn't know where quite where you were, and uh, Italy's a beautiful country, and uh, it we traveled there uh, and and saw a great deal. It you know I was determined because I had this journal that I had to write something about what happened to me and to the rest of the Buffalo soldiers that fought in Italy. Because if you can imagine this, there are more than 400 of us still buried there in the U.S. cemetery in Florence, Italy. Mm. An amazing tale, amazing story, the, uh, the history of the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II. What of the action sequences that are listed in your book or told in your, do- in your book do you think the reader is going to find the most startling and, and uh, amazing uh, there are several. Uh, I think one where we fought, we were fighting to get to the top of a hill, a mountain called Mount Canale, near a little town called Serravezza in Italy. And uh, it's a, on, on this day, our battalion lost uh, over 75 men. Uh, I was there trying to get ammunition. As I say, I did multiple things. To the uh, to our company on the top of the hill, which was running out of uh, ammunition, and uh, we were just blasted by a machine gun and artillery fire. Several were killed and wounded. Uh, I myself was not hit by sh- fragments, but actually fragments falling from the sky landed on my. Uh, on my clothes and burned the way through to the skin. Mm. It was a, a terrible action that we were in and very memorable to me to this day. The Italian people in Lucca once a year still commemorate some of those battles, don't they? They do. I was just there that, that was for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of the city of Lucca by the Buffalo soldiers. I, they have what they call reenactors. We drove in World War II jeeps and army vehicles, which are in pristine condition. And uh, we entered uh, the city of Lucca and were cheered loudly. I was the only Buffalo soldier there, but I was leading the procession. So you can just imagine how I felt Mm. with these people cheering me. Wonderful honor. Uh, unfortunately, it was not that way after World War II, was it? It took a while for things to turn around and become, I, I guess, normal as we see it in today's world, uh, where everyone is honored for who they are. That's absolutely correct. We, uh, we returned, and uh, there was no difference uh, in our status. We were still second-class citizens. I, as a... Uh, was back to the University of California at Berkeley. Could, I was unable to get uh, uh, married uh, uh, students' housing because I was uh, an African American. Uh, I was they had they gave me housing uh, with the black shipyard workers in Richmond, California. Wow! But uh, it's thing things still did, had not had not changed. Didn't change until the '60s and Dr. Martin Luther King came along. What is it in your character or in your upbringing or perhaps advice that you received as a young person that caused you to aim for success and achieve it? Well, I think the principal role model there was my father, who was also an artillery officer in the Buffalo 92nd Division in World War I in France. So he told us all about that, and uh, he was uh, a wonder, a great businessman. He's the one one of those who helped to co-found the uh, company that I was the CEO uh, from 1970 to 1990. So he was, he was, uh, and he was involved in the community. He never let 
the fact that there was racial discrimination or segregation stop him in anything. Beautiful. There must be an underlying story, a message in addition to the obvious that's here. What do you want people to take away from this read? Uh, I'd, I'd like them to take away the fact that uh, here we were, uh, as, at, at that time, second-class citizens in our own country, yet we were fighting to free uh, the Italian people from oppressors because uh, their oppressors were the Nazi Germany and in northern Italy, still fascist Italy. So we, second-class American citizens, black troops, gave them their liberty, and they celebrate that here after 70 years, still celebrating their liberation by these Buffalo soldiers. So I'd like people to read the book with that in mind. And you've been back, what, nine or ten times to Italy? Yes, ten times. I've been back to Italy, not to the same places, but... uh, in the last three years, I've been back to, uh, to Luca, <laughs> and it's a wonderful city. Is there any time when you were in service that there was absolute terror, that you were concerned for your safety? Well, the time that I described uh, at uh, Saravetsa, uh was one. There was another time that we were caught in a, uh, a villa, Fortunately, we didn't have to dig too many foxholes in Italy. We fought from city to city and villa to villa. And uh, the villa was uh, hit 127 times while I was in it, me and about six other guys. But it was very strongly built. We were covered with debris, but we got out alive. So, you know, that was uh, another adventure. You also have had the honor or distinction of meeting the Pope several times. Yes, I did. I, uh, I met uh, Pope John Paul II uh, once in 1988. I, it, was, it was at Vatican City and in the, the big auditorium there, and he came down the aisle, and he just walked over to me and shook my hand. Fortunately, they took a picture of it. <laughs> Wonderful. And then again, my wife and I were presented to him in uh, 1996, uh, because we were celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. Incre- so we were presented to him at that time. You have written and penned an incredible story, not only of the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, but also your personal legacy is included in this book. It's a beautiful book of 244 pages or so, titled Memoirs of the Only Negro Infantry Division to Fight in Europe During World War II. Black Warriors is the title. The Buffalo Soldiers of World War II is the subtitle. And our author, Ivan J. Houston. Sir, where can we get copies of this book? Well, you can get copies now, uh, according to my publisher, at most bookstores. Or, obviously, you can get it online through uh, Amazon or other uh, uh, online uh, uh, corporations that sell books that way. So it is a, it is available. Uh, Mr. Houston, uh, do you also have a website? Yes, I do. It's uh, blackwarriors.com. Fabulous. And they can get more information about the book, probably read an excerpt or uh, find out more about yes, your activities. Yes, even information about the Buffalo Soldiers, and uh, there's a lot of information on there. Are there other books in the future, since you don't have anything else to do? <laughs> Well, I'm trying to write a book about my uh, business career, which was also long and uh, I think sort of unusual. But uh, yeah, I've been so busy with the uh, with this Italian book, and now that uh, they've tr- uh, translated into the Italian, uh, I haven't been able to get back to the book that I was writing. This is a great book. I would recommend it to all my listeners. Please get a copy of Black Warriors: The Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, and honor our author, Ivan J. Houston. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. Honored to visit with you. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. 
Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Judas Playing Field. And our author who joins me from my home country, Patricia Neary, is in Canada. Thank you for joining me today, Patricia. You're welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. This is another uh, one of those scary, or would you call it just a mysterious books that you have penned? Um, it, it goes under the title Suspense Thriller. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty scary. And it's, and, and it's also a sequel to one that you have uh, written earlier. This is the second yes. in the series. The first one had to do with, shall I use the term, Asylum? Exactly. Yeah, this 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 particular novel has a main character, Doctor James Blake, and uh, in your intro to the book, it says he was a highly respected chief medical physician at River Edge Mental Health Institution. So this yep. sets the story, sets the groundwork. Where did the storyline come from, Patricia? Um, it was. How do I say this without sounding? Much. Um, it came from um, a thought in the middle of the night. Mm. I just, um, the story comes to the writer, the writer doesn't go to the story. Right. I don't know how to quite explain that. It, it just, it, it just happens so naturally. It's like, all of a sudden you have an idea and then you run with it. But you haven't always been an author. This is a relatively recent career change, is it not? Yeah, when growing up, I wanted to be a comedian. <laughs> really? Wow! <laughs> Who would have thought? Who'd have thunk it? Uh, and in, 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 in Canada, that would that would be uh, difficult since uh, the the uh, the comedy clubs are not open the winter time. They they close down, and everybody goes south. Exactly. So hey, I I'm I'm destined to do uh, scary stories to. Um, I don't know. Anyway, I guess it's a thrill-seeking something or other. The other authors that you admired, I guess, in your early reading habits as a child, young adult, uh, what and who were they? Okay, it first started out when I was, I think, three years old. It was Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And then it went on to um, Pamela Cowell, Chelsea Kane. Kendra Elliott, and my new favorite now is Gunnar Lawrence. These authors have the same style of uh, writing as you are pursuing? Similar, or is it yeah. Similar to it. Just, um, yeah, they have, each author puts their own spin on um, whatever idea they have, which is really interesting because there's no... Two authors that write the same. Uh, you've managed to pen 382 pages. That must have taken a while to get the storyline together. Did you start with an outline with a character, uh, I guess, uh, scope or, or sketch? How did you begin your novel? Well, um, what I do is um, I write a chapter and then I put a point. I write another chapter, put another point. And then I have a guideline to follow. And then it just speeds along and... Um, how I write is there's no set time. I write until there's nothing left inside of me. And then I take a break and then it could be, I could write 16 hours. I can write two hours. It, um, it really is. There's no set time. 
and then that's how I do it. Do you? Uh, I have some authors that actually manually print or write their novel and then transfer it to computer form. Is this exactly process that you use? It. Is it? Yeah, that's exactly how. I find that it gets more ideas onto the paper and less rambling. I have uh, I have tried Sorry. tried doing that and can't read my writing. As, uh, I, I, <laughs> you need a secretary. I, I need penmanship. I, I I never did practice well when I was in grade school, and as I pass along to many people, high school was the best ten years of my life. Uh, being a student was not my career. Wow, high school was my worst years. Well, we have something in common. We were both in the Canadian system, and it abused us mentally, emotionally, and uh, intellectually. Well, they didn't really fulfill the needs that I required. It was, um, I I almost felt like a robot. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. There was one teacher, though, and her name was Mrs. Hickey. Oh, my goodness. She was was the first lady to ever introduce to me words into imagination. And I remember her reading uh, the book Narnia, and I was so engrossed. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was so excited. And I think at that point I knew... There was something in me, but it took years and years before it it finally came out that I could be a writer. How long did it take you to complete this one, Judas Plainfield? It takes me exactly a year. Six months to write the story, and then after that, it's all that horrible editing. And pulling pieces out and adding pieces in and putting the puzzle completely together. But afterwards, I remember I was at a book signing one time, and because I had written Breach of Sanity ten times, okay, ten full times, Mm. and somebody asked me, oh, what is the best thing about Jesus playing Phil? And I said, I never have to write it again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the title is unique. Also, uh, Judas Plainfield. Where did that idea come from? That came from one of my characters. Or, or, okay, Roger Tot, um, who is the serial killer, is also just for a brief moment is shown in Breach of Sanity. So. Introducing that character briefly, I was able to take him and bring him into the next novel and have him as um, the evil one. This novel, because it does deal with serial killers and other graphic, um, I guess, uh, scenes, is this suitable for young children, young adults, or is it a little too intense? It is really, really intense. You know what I find, which is really um, ironic, is the older generation is reading it. Like I'm talking 40, 50, 60, 70. Mm. And I didn't, uh, that was not the market that I target. Uh, so it, it depends. It Actually, it depends on what you like. Right. Or what the person likes, right? Like Kirkus, um, in my Kirkus review, one of the sentences um, they say is, her unflinching work peels back the flesh behind a modern serial killer, detailing his methods and his motives. And then it says, victims are murdered in vividly gruesome detail. And when readers are finally let into... Hot psychic, the portrait becomes even more haunting. So I would not suggest a 14 or 15 year old read that, no. Have you been approached by a movie producer yet? No, not, not yet. yet. If you were, which of the scenes that you have penned do you think would stand out to them? Um, I believe just what I wrote, or just what I read, and... Um, on the back of the book, it talks about uh, Dr. Ellen Smith, and she is kidnapped um, by the serial killer. 
she knows him because she's the only psychiatrist that has ever interviewed him. Mm. That's where I would start it. And uh, being an individual who at one time wanted to be a comedian, serial <laughs> is spelled with an S, not with a C. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I had to bring that up. <laughs> I'm sorry I had to bring that up. You talk oh, about Dr. Okay. James, James Blake and his psyche, how, uh, I guess, uh, demented and uh, messed up he is. And then you say no one can stop him until 15-year-old Frankie Martin is admitted to River Edge and he experiences his resident evil. Yeah. That has my um, attention. It does, doesn't it? It does. Because it's true. And what... Um, what, what this demon man does, um, it, it's just unspeakable terror, unspeakable terror. But what I heard, and this is so funny, well, not funny, but to me it's a compliment, that um, that book is so um, close to reality that it scares people. One, one person bought my book and couldn't read it. She said it's so close to reality. And, and you know, that was the first book. So I went on um, in Judas Playing Field, and I was Roger Todd. He's a really, really, really good-looking dude. Like, I have got him, like, like, chiseled face, like, whatever, right? So women are really attracted to him. And, and I think the underlining to this book is for women, all women, be really, really careful of who you're meeting because right. you can't trust a pretty face. Uh, that's 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 good advice. I have grandchildren that I would pass that information along. They'd ignore me, but I uh, I agree with you. That's that is an important aspect of life. And uh, even though it's fictional, mm-hmm. it can still happen. The underlying message that perhaps comes through, besides the entertainment value, what would that be? Yeah, for women. Okay, the underlining is I'm going to read this off. Even. After the novel's ending, it still has a breathless conclusion, and thriller fans may find the spill guts and graphic sexual scenes a little too intense, but horror readers will appreciate that the author does not stint on the specifics, which means if you bring home um, strangers or invite strangers into your home, um, be really careful. Mm. Just be really careful, and it's and I think there's an underlining to all, everything that I write. Right now, I'm working on my uh, my third suspense novel called Bully Beware. <laughs> well, that, that that says it all, right? It, it does say it. Yes, <laughs> it does say it. I guess if I were to introduce you to one of my listeners on the street corner of Toronto, let's say, and uh, and mention that you are an author. How would you introduce your books and your style of writing to them? I would introduce myself as, hi, my name is Patricia Neary. I am the author of two suspense thrillers. (laughs) Why Why should they buy this one, though, Judas Plainfield? They should buy this one because it's very well written. Very well written. And it's not just your average pop culture icon serial killer thriller. It comes with um, lessons. It comes with humor. It comes with all of the stuff that, that you want to be entertained with, as well as lessons. Good introduction. There must have been some challenges in completing this. You mentioned a one-year period of time. Uh, that doesn't seem like a long process from some of the authors no. I've, uh, I've, I've interviewed. Some have taken as much as 10 years to complete their work. That's not a bad turnaround. Were there other challenges that you faced to get this completed? I have, for the traditional publishing houses, um, I... I'm not going to say anything bad about them. What I really, really wish is that they would give new authors a chance. And by saying this, I mean you wouldn't buy a house if you only saw the foyer. Right. Read the whole book. Read the book. Don't judge the book by the first three chapters. It's not fair. You have described your book this way. It's a book about a main character, 
You also call it a fast-paced story, an emotional roller coaster, raw depiction of murder, and the last one, lock your doors. Ooh, I'm scared already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, you start reading it, and then all of a sudden you're looking around because you you get, I creep you out. It it gets really creepy. (laughs) Well, congratulations on making a creepy uh, road, which uh, my uh, teenage friends and and, uh, grandkids would say that creeps me out. Exactly. Exactly, and that that that's my aim. I I write about what scares me, and like I'm a good old fashioned Cape Breton girl from a coal mining family, so we're kind of tough. Mm. <laughs> this sounds like a fascinating read, and again, it's a sequel. The title is Judas Playingfield. Our author Patricia Neary has joined me from Ontario, Canada. Patricia, best of luck on this and your future endeavors. How do we get get a copy of Judas Playingfield? You can uh, download it from any site. Just put my name in and the title of the book, or you can go to any of your bookstores and just ask for it, and they will they will order it for you. Have you completed a website as yet? I have. Just look under Patricia Neary, and you'll find it. You also have one, I think, that's uh, from your first book, breachofsanity.com. Would that also be a good uh, launching spot for them to get acquainted with your writing? It, it was. It was. Just, just, just to show who I am. Thank you for joining me today. Again, Neary is spelled N-E-A-R-Y. First name, Patricia. Patricia, thank you for your success and for sharing it with our audience, and we hope to hear from you in the future. Thank you, Jay, and you have uh, an awesome weekend. It was it was truly was a pleasure. Pleasure visiting with you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.